Well, good morning. I um, recently read, and I don't know if it was Forbes or the Business Journal, it was one of those two, but I, I read an article that said that this past year, American companies spent over $200 billion just on advertising. Advertising. And, and that's kind of remarkable because so many advertisements are so unforgettable. I mean, are so forgettable. They just come and then they go and, and without a second thought. But every once in a while, a company will strike gold, right? And they'll just, they'll, they'll have their finger on the pulse of where the culture's at or what have you. And, and, and it just becomes the thing of legends. And so whether it's Chick-fil-A's cows telling you to eat more chicken, whether it's the California Milk Processing Board asking you the question of, do you got milk? Or a little gecko lizard talking to you, saying that you can lower your insurance 15%. Whatever the case may be, these, these ads just kind of take on a life of their own. And, and they spread like wildfire. And if you look at the past 10 years, one of, the, one of the biggest, most legendary ad campaigns was actually done, unfortunately, by an adult beverage company that wanted to introduce you to the most interesting man in the world. And, and the way the commercials would work is you'd have this distinct music, and then you would have this distinct voice come on, and that voice would tell you about the accomplishments of this mysterious man. Things such as, this guy can slam a revolving door. That he once found the fountain of youth, but decided not to take a drink because he wasn't thirsty. That Sasquatch has taken a photograph of him. And that his two cents is actually worth $37 and change. And I remember seeing one of these commercials, and probably like you, the first time I see it, I'm thinking, first of all, what company is this? And then the second question that pops up is, who is this man? Who is this guy? And that's when the commercial would go, he is the most interesting man in the world. And they would cut to him, and he would promote the product. And promote it, he did. Their sales went up 22%. It became an internet meme um, fascination. And the Google searching for the most interesting man in the world skyrocketed just because of this ad campaign and the genius of it. And by the way, please hear me, I am not advocating the product. <laughs> Save your emails, okay? It's an illustration. It's an illustration. But the genius of the ad campaign, besides the humor, was that it built this mystery and this intrigue to where you found yourself asking, who is it? Who is this man? And albeit a very different setting and for a very different purpose, friends, this is exactly what Luke is doing in his gospel. What Luke is saying is, I want you to meet a guy from the backwoods of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm going to build a case. And what I want you to do is I want to present a question. I want to just thrust it in your face. And that question is this, who is he? Who is this man? Because you have to remember that each of the four Gospels are written with a particular aim. So they are, they are biographical in nature, but they really serve as apologetics. The writers are presenting Christ to a particular audience. And when you think about the gospel of Luke, Luke is writing his gospel to the Gentiles. These are non-Jews. 
Whereas you look at the Gospel of Matthew, that's written to Jews. So Matthew assumes that they have some idea about this Jewish Messiah concept. And so Matthew's unpacking who is this Messiah and how Jesus fulfills the Messiah. But Luke's not arguing that. Luke's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people who are probably not steeped in Judaism. Probably not even steeped in monotheism. They are, like in our day and age, they would be considered the unchurched, the dechurched. And he's presenting Jesus as the perfect man. The one who, this unique figure who can calm the storm. This unique figure who can cast out demons, who can heal disease, who can do all these things. And he's forcing you to ponder the question, who is he? Who is this man? And so when we come to our passage today, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8, we're going to have two kind of famous scenes, famous stories. The healing, the casting out demons and, and the demoniac, and then the calming of the storm. And, and in the process, that question's going to bubble up to the surface. Who is he? And starting in verse 22, this is what it says. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? So we know from the Gospel of Mark that this event is actually taking place after the parable of the four soils. So Jesus has been teaching during the day, and this actually, Mark tells us, happens at night. So they set on the boat to sail out across the 13 miles of, of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is worn out. Okay, he's, he's tired. He's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been ministering, and he's just flat out tired. And this is one of the few places where I feel like I have a special kinship with Jesus. Because you may look at me right now, and you may be like, man, Michael is wired. I mean, that guy's got juice upon juice upon juice. Come to my house at 4 p.m. today. I'm going to be a zombie. I'll be laid up on the couch. I'll be gassed. And I'm just preaching a few services. Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been preaching. And and he's tired. And, And the fact that he's tired is a beautiful reminder of his humanity. And a beautiful reminder of the extent that he went to in order to secure redemption. Because I want you to let this mystery set in for a little bit. The God who created the universe became fatigued. The one who holds all things together needed a nap. That's the length that our, that our Savior went to in his humanity to redeem and so the God man is, is on the boat, he's tired, and he goes to sleep. I mean, he's that guy, you know, when you're in the plane, and it's not even off the taxi, it's not even done taxing, and they're just out, sawing logs right next to you. So that's Jesus right here. But while Jesus is sleeping, the apostles are panicking. Why? Because a storm has blown in. 
You see, the Sea of, of Galilee is this really unique geographical area that because of the, the depth of sea level and the fact that it's surrounded by hills and mountains, the air hits each other, the warm air over the water and the cool air through the, through the mountains, and it can just, you can just have a storm just like that, just out of nowhere. It's a fascinating geographical place. And so this is what happens. They're out on the sea, and this torrential storm comes. The Greek word used here, it can be described to, to describe a hurricane. And so you've got to remember, the apostles... Many of them are, are what? They're fishermen. So this is not their first rodeo with rough waters. They've cut their teeth on this. This is their profession. And yet they are in complete panic because of the intensity of the storm. And, and most of us probably can't necessarily relate to what that was like. I mean, most of us don't spend our life uh, on the open water, sailing around. I've been, I've been out in the ocean one time in a real way. I went deep sea fishing in Port Aransas when I was 12 years old, and it was one of the few times in my life where I said, Lord, take me now, because <laughs> I was so sick. But many people in here do fly, and so you have experienced turbulence. And, and whenever you fly, you, you, you anticipate that you're going to experience maybe a little bit of turbulence, but there's a special few of you in here who's gotten to experience the intense turbulence before. When, when the captain or the, or the flight attendant comes on, and goes, yes, 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 please sit down, sit down, sit down, buckle up, buckle up. You make sure your uh, rifle is level. And you realize, oh boy. And that's when your prayer life really kicks in, right? That's when you and God become tight there on the plane. And that's what's going on here. Massive turbulence. The captains are panicked. And where's Jesus. I mean, this is amazing. He's sleeping. He's crashed out. You know, it reminded me, um, you know, when you get married, you find out things about your spouse that you didn't know. And one of the things I found out about Victoria, and a difference that we had, is I'm a, I'm a deep sleeper, and Victoria's a light sleeper. And this really came to a head as we started having kids. And, and, and I would wake up in the morning, and I would, I would just you know, say, man, Praise the Lord. What a good night of sleep. And the kids slept through the night. I mean, how blessed are we, babe? And Victoria would be like, yeah, I woke up seven times. This kid threw up. This kid had to use the restroom. This kid needed a diaper change. Uh, the, the, wa- the washing machine gave out. Um, there was an ambulance next door, and the fire alarm went off. And I would look at her and say, okay. So not everybody got great sleep. And so, but this is what's going on here. Chaos surrounds Jesus is peacefully sleeping. He's out like a light until the disciples come and they wake him up. And they say, master, master, we are perishing. This is a, a double vocative in the Greek, which is just a fancy way of saying they are saying it with serious intensity. They're not saying, hey, Jesus, what do you think? Would you be interested in waking up? Um, because we are about to die. They're saying, wake up. Wake up. In the parallel passage in, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that the disciples said, don't you care if we drown? 
Do you not care, Jesus? I mean, isn't that the cry of our hearts sometimes? I mean, seriously. When we're in a tough place, when, when the storm seems to be on top of our head, and we say, Jesus, do you even care about me? Because I'm drowning. I'm drowning. And I need you. And Jesus shows up. It says he got up and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. He gets up and he just says, shh. And all of a sudden, it's a peaceful night on the Sea of Galilee. I want you to, I mean, just imagine this. Rain is pelting you on your face. Waves are filling up the boat. The wind is howling. This guy stands up and says, stop. And it stops. Just like that. I would imagine their first response was not to go, yes. I would imagine their first response was utter silence. Just stunned. Who is this? Who is this man that can even calm the storm as the drips of water, drops of water just drip off their face? And they're processing what just happened. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, where is your faith? In the Mark in account, why are you so afraid? It's one of those places where I think I can offer a little insight to the omniscient God. Why are they afraid? Let me help you out, Jesus. They're afraid because they thought they were going to die. And because the, their boat was sinking. And because the waves were crashing. And because the wind was howling. And because the rain was coming. And they were desperate. That's why they were afraid. Fear and desperation overtook them. But don't miss Jesus' point that he's asking through this question. Don't miss the point he is making. He is saying that the best thing you can do in the midst of a storm is to remember who's in your boat. Who's in your boat? And is your focus on the storm or the one who can calm the storm? The disciples felt the rain. They they saw the waves. They felt the wind and they panicked. Fear filled them. Doubt swooped in and they became desperate. And Jesus is saying... Look, storms are going to come to all of us. Storms are going to come. And when fear starts to set in, and when doubt starts to attack you, remember that you are in my boat. That I am in the boat with you and that it's going to be okay. You're in good hands. Now, does that mean that life is going to be easy? No. This week has been an intense 
week for me personally. Just a few days ago, I was, I was at the hospital with a young couple from our church who loves the Lord, who is faithful and incredible. And I sat with them as they held their baby who had died 30 minutes after being born. And we prayed over that child and prayed with this couple, completely heartbroken. Yesterday, I got a call or a text from my childhood best friend. who His dad was like my second dad. And he passed away yesterday afternoon. And now my, my buddy, who's a single, uh, he's an only child. He's lost both his mom and his, and his pop. Spoke with a guy this week who, in our, in our church who loves the Lord and wrestles with same-sex attraction. Just like, what's, what's wrong with me? Why is this happening? Why do I feel this way? And he's wrestling through that storm. I know in a congregation our size, there's, there's marriages that are in a storm. And, and you need the grace of God just to rain down on you. Maybe you've received a prognosis and the storm has come to your front porch. Or maybe your child's in a storm and you can't do anything about it. And so you feel utterly helpless. And what Jesus is reminding us is life will not be easy. But in his boat, we are secure in the love of our Father. And that whatever this world attacks us with, including our greatest enemy, which is death, it cannot get us. Because of what God has secured in Christ. This is why in that great passage in Matthew 10 where Jesus is teaching the apostles, in verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. He says, Don't fear those who the worst, the worst thing they can do is kill you because they can't get your soul. They have no say over that. So you don't fear them. But then he goes on and he says, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body and hell. Fear the one with the real power. And let me tell you about this one with the real power. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear for you are more valuable than many sparrows. You are valuable to God. God cares about you. He cares about you. And while he is not some genie in a bottle willing to grant our every wish, he is the Lord of life that meets our greatest need. And he does not promise us a life devoid of pain, but he promises us an eternity filled with joy for those who are in the boat with him. That's what he promises us. And that's what Christ secured for us. And so this was a tumultuous trip. And you would think that they're going to arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and kick back in the hammocks that are waiting for them at the Galilean resort. But that's not what they get, is it? Look at verse 26, as they are greeted in an unexpected way. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. And who had not put on any clothing for a long time. And was not living in a house but in the tombs. 
Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. So this is quite an arrival. They get to the other side and they're greeted by this guy who is naked, demon-possessed, living in a cemetery. And he's been out there for some time. He has lost it. And they had chained him up in town and he broke those chains and headed out there to the cemetery. And that's who Jesus sees. And he, he recognizes the demon possession. He confronts the demon. The demon says, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. You know, a while ago, I think it was this summer, Pastor Jason, he, he made an astute point And he said, you know, early in Jesus' ministry, you know who has some of the clearest theology about who he is? The demons. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. And yet, they still stand in opposition to him. And it's, it's a fascinating point, and one that applies even in our day and age, that knowledge about Jesus does not equate to belief in Jesus. It's not the same thing. There are kids who grow up in the church, and they know all the stories, and they don't know Jesus as Lord. It happens. And there are professors who are PhDs who know more about Jesus than any of us do, but they don't know him as Lord, and so in reality, they don't know him at all. So knowledge does not equate to faith or belief. That is the act of the Spirit that makes that transition. And not only do we find that knowledge does not equate necessarily to belief, we also find in this interaction the complete irrationality of sin. Do you see how irrational sin is and unbelief? The demons know who he is. And yet they stay in rebellion against him. They persist in opposition. And isn't that sin? We we know who God is and we say, no, I'm going to go a different way. Like, I truly believe if Jesus showed up today in a movie theater down the road and he performed some great miracle and then called on the people in the, in the theater to say, now follow me, there would be a number of people who would be there and say, yeah, mm, I'm not going to. No thanks. I got some other things I need to do. I'm serious. And, and I believe they would do that in our day and age because they did it in his day and age. Not everyone who witnessed miracles came to faith in him. Not that all who were amazed became converted. Some of them left completely unchanged. It's irrational. And, and what ultimately will happen is judgment, and we see that next. Because while they have accurate authority, or uh, they have accurate theology, and they understand his authority, they stay in opposition. And so Jesus gives us a glimpse of the judgment to come as he sends the demons into the swine. Look at verse 32. It says, now there was a herd of many swine feeding 
there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Once again, what a scene. Go there. Go there in your mind. He cast the demons out by his word, and the pigs just start running. And one by one, they're just jumping over the cliff. And you're witnessing this. Who, who is this? Who, who is this man? That's the question. And then in the, the following verses, we see the two responses. Look at verse 34. It says, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. So the people who witnessed this, they go to the town and they say, guys, you don't understand what just happened. You've got to come see this. So townspeople come out or whomever is there, and they see the, 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 the demoniac. They see this crazy guy who they all know about who lives naked in the, in the cemetery outside of town. They see him clothed, sitting, in the feet, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then they see the tracks where the pigs were leading to the cliff in which they jumped off. And their immediate response is fear. And that is an appropriate response. Because God is the God of the universe with a big G. He's the Almighty. You don't mess with God. And so fear is an accurate um, impression. But what was not okay was their response. Because in verse 36, it says, Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. This is actually a really tragic scene. The Lord of life is in their midst. They're face to face with Jesus. I mean, they are face to face with him. And their response is, get away from me. I want you out of here. You are not Welcome here. And they send him away. And yet there was one who said, but I want to go with you. And that was the man. Look at verse 38. It says, but the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. And he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. As I said, it's been a, it's been a long week. And, and as I was preparing this message and going over this passage, I cried on these verses. I just cried because this guy is so broken he's so broken 
I mean, he's, he's naked. He's possessed. He is by himself. He has no human connection. He is in complete bondage, alone. And when Jesus breaks his bonds, when Jesus frees him from his enslavement, he says, I just want to go with you. I just want to go with you. Because you're the Lord of life. And you healed me. And I don't know where you're going, but I want to go with you. Because now I can see in color. And I want to see the world with you. And now I can actually live. And I want to live my life for you. And yet, Jesus does this amazing thing. Is that he tells him to stay. You know, I found that many people... It's been my experience that many people in whom Jesus shines the brightest are the ones that he rescued from the deepest darkness. The ones in whom Jesus shines the brightest are the ones he's rescued from the deepest darkness. This summer, my family and I, we went to Arizona with one of our mission trips um, here with Wayside to work with the Navajo children. And there there was a woman on our trip who had spent years in prison. She was a drug addict sold drugs, theft, lost her kid. And she goes to prison, and God breaks her. And she gets out of prison, and she enters a place that a number of folks at our church are familiar with called Grace House. And she spends a year at Grace House where they minister to these women who are transitioning out of incarceration. And God just wraps his arms around her, And she falls in love with her Savior. She goes and gets a Bible degree. She's on fire for the Lord. And Jesus just shines right through her. And we were there in Arizona. And I just couldn't believe what God had done in this woman. From the stink of the cell to this minister of hope. Restored with her child. Ministering for the gospel. Shining for Jesus. It was incredible. Because she got the two most important concepts that so many of us are unfamiliar with that we don't get. And that is the pain of sin and the grace of our Savior. And if you can understand sin and you can understand grace, you're on your way to truly understanding the gospel. And so this man says, I want to go with you, Jesus. But Jesus says, no, here's what I need you to do. You're going to stay. You're going to go back because they know you and they know that the transformation is real. And so as I, as I thought of it this week, my, my, my phrase was, I am sending you to stay. I am sending you to stay. And so it really brings this idea of, of, of being sent. And the reality is, is that all Christians are sent by God. There's no professional and then regular Christians. Some are sent across the world to serve in a a capacity of a missionary, and some are sent to the other side of the boardroom or or into the doctor's office or into their school or into their local community. We're all sent. Do not make the mistake that you you have the necessity of mileage for the opportunity for ministry. You don't need a necessity of mileage for the opportunity for ministry because it's right where you are. It's right where you are. 
Last week I talked about how that 414 window, when that's the, when the most people come to faith in the Lord, is between the ages of 4 and 14. But as you get older and as you leave kids who have been churched and go to those who are de-churched or unchurched, the number one thing that God uses to bring about conversion is a relationship with an authentic believer. That's the number one way. It's not through a pastor. It's not through a podcast. It's through you. It's through you. I was a, um, many of you know I was a teacher and a coach for seven years at O'Connor High School. And there was one morning when I was uh, doing the hated cafeteria duty before school. It's like the fifth level of hell in Dante's Inferno. And there was a guy that I had gotten to know uh, during my time there at O'Connor who frankly drove me nuts. He was, a, he was a hard kid to like. Disrespectful, angry, resentful, um, proud. Just had a hard time with him. And, and one morning, he's acting up, and I say, hey, come with me. Let's step outside. And he's disrespectful to me. And we go outside, and frankly, y'all, I mean, I'm just going to be transparent with you. I want to punch the kid. I'm dead serious. I'm not even trying to be funny. I want to punch him. Now, now if I had done that, my life would have probably taken a different direction. <laughs> and so I'm so frustrated. But then this, I, I, feel, I feel like the Spirit's moving, and, I, and I'm like, I think I'm supposed to preach Christ to this kid. And so I look at him, and, and I say something along these words. I say, son, and he goes, I'm not your son. I go, I know, but you are someone's son. And I said, and I know deep inside, you desperately want to be loved. I know that's right there in you. And the way you're acting and the attitude that you show and the disrespect that you think makes you tough or makes you a man, it doesn't. Because being a man is not about being macho. It's not about disrespect. It's not about acting tough. It's not about sleeping around. It's not about accumulating things. I said, being a man starts by getting on your knees. It starts by recognizing who God is and living for him. And that comes through a relationship with Christ. And he says, hey, that's great. No thanks. And I say, good. Well, don't disrespect me anymore. And we're done. And that's towards the end of the year. And then I'm done. And I come over to Wayside. That's the, our last interaction until I got an email from him a few years later. And these are the words that he sent me. He said, Coach, you probably do not remember me. <laughs> oh, I do, my friend. <laughs> Coach, you probably do not remember me, but one day in the cafeteria at O'Connor, you gave me advice on how to be a man. Back then I could care less and didn't think twice about it. Now I understand what you meant and now I know what it means to have a relationship with Christ. I just want to say thank you and I hope God continues to bless you and your family. And friends, that guy is married. He's got a kid. He's plugged into a church. He's walking humbly before his Lord. But here's the thing. I wasn't on staff at a church when it happened. I'm not even a great evangelist. I wanted to punch the kid, okay? <laughs> I just shared the gospel with this kid that I knew. That's all I did. And God got a hold of his heart. 
And here's the deal. He never would have come here. Do you realize that? He never would have come to Wayside or any other church. He never would have stepped inside the four walls. You could have given him some Christian literature and he would have said, no thanks. He wouldn't even opened his Bible. But he saw me. He read me. Just like people read you. They read you. And I know we're broken. And we understand that so much more than anybody else around us. We know our brokenness. But he is resurrecting us by the power of his spirit. He is making us new. And when people see you, for many, that is their glimpse at Christian literature. That is the only Bible they're going to get their hands on any time soon. And it's an incredible calling. It's an incredible privilege. Because I did nothing that day but share the gospel. And look what God's allowed me to experience. Don't let this be something that burdens you. What a blessing. How, how sweet was it to read that email? How sweet was that? That I get to share in that. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything but tell the kid about the God who loves him and Christ who died for him. And I get to celebrate in the miracle of salvation that God produced in this guy's heart. And he's walking with the Lord and he's married. And that's incredible. And I get to be a part of that. As do you. Because only you can reach those that only you can reach. And we are all sent. We are all sent. And when we fulfill this, God gets the glory and we get to be a part of his great redemptive story. And that is a beautiful thing. There was chaos on the water and Jesus brought peace. There was chaos in the demoniac and Jesus brought peace. Where Jesus goes, he brings peace and he sends us as his people as ministers of peace who go into the chaos with the hope of the gospel. So return to your house. Return to your city. Return to your workplace. Return to your neighborhood. Return to your school. And describe what great things God has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we are so broken and we are in desperate need of grace. And sometimes when we we even think about reaching out to others, we're like, but I am such a mess. And yet, God, you are making us new. Your grace is sufficient. And to be a Christian is not to be perfect. It's to be in a right relationship with you by grace. And God, if there's anyone here who's never taken that step, if there's anyone here who has never seen you as you truly are, as the God who created them, the God whose love is so powerful that it took on flesh as God the Father sent God the Son to be the Savior of the world. Every man dies. Every woman dies. Every child, person dies. But you, Jesus, rose from the grave. You conquered death and sin. And you say all that will trust in you for the forgiveness of your sin will have 
the fullness of life now and eternal life to come. And that they will be in that boat of security and safety and love in the Father's arms from now forevermore. Lord, I pray you would move in their heart by the Spirit. You would convict them and give them eyes to see. And God, for those of us who do know you and find ourselves in the midst of a storm, God, I, there's days where I feel so weak and so overwhelmed and all I see are waves coming over my boat and rain pelting me in the face and the wind howling by my ears and I'm desperate. And I know there's others here who feel that this very second. And I pray, God, that they would recognize that you are in the boat with them. And that when they are in your ship, they are safe and secure. And that this world cannot take what you have redeemed. It cannot take what you have given. It cannot take what you have secured. And Lord, would you take our eyes off our storm and take them to your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we weather that storm by leaning on our Savior to the glory of our Father by the power of the Spirit. Have your way in us. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.